please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, our, our friend and uh, example in the faith, uh, who was mentioned who will be at our Relay Conference, I'm excited to announce will also be with us next week, next Sunday, to preach. C.J. is one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he was here last week as well. He is one of the founders of our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches, and he was leading the church that planted this local church, Covenant Fellowship, in 1984. And so he is a dear brother and a friend, and he loves visiting here because he is so encouraged by this church. And so that's next Sunday, and you won't want to miss it. Uh, today, we continue our series in, in Philippians, looking at the first chapter of this glorious epistle. Uh, Paul started the letter, we saw last week, with an affectionate, grateful introduction, and now he is updating the church on his situation. Uh, as I read this, I want you to, to notice how he shares his difficult situation with them. He, he talks about his suffering, but he does so in a way that encourages and energizes and refreshes those who hear. He, he shares in a way that is an incredible example for us all. Our sermon title is Rejoicing in the Advance of the Gospel. We'll be looking at Philippians 1 verses 12 through 18. I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy and authoritative word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. May God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There's a popular children's book called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. It was a really bad day for Alexander. He wakes up with bubble gum in his hair. He trips on his skateboard when he gets out of bed. Uh, at school, his best friend tells him that he is now his third best friend. After school, he goes to the dentist and finds a cavity. He is then pushed into a mud puddle. When he gets back home, they have lima beans for dinner, and he is disgusted by the kissing on TV. Uh, when he goes to bed, he bites his tongue, and his nightlight 
dies. The theme throughout the book is Alexander wanting to move to Australia because he thinks life is better there, and his mom needs to remind him that everyone has bad days, even people in Australia. The Apostle Paul had a lot of circumstances that were going against him. He is, he is suffering. He is having a no good, very bad day. In fact, it wasn't just a bad day. This was a part of Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome. It's described in Acts chapter 26, and this particular imprisonment was immediately following a three-year imprisonment that he had elsewhere. His suffering was very great. It was extended suffering with no end in sight. He's called the apostle to the nations, and yet he is confined in prison. He desires to visit young churches, to plant more churches, but he is confined in prison. He's under house arrest. He's able to stay in a home, but was under constant guard. He had no freedom. He was awaiting trial before Caesar, and he knows the situation could end in his execution. This is the situation. And added to this, in fact, to sort of top it all off, there were, we learned from the second half of our text, uh, fellow Christians who were mistreating him and seeking to afflict him in his imprisonment. Here's a picture of the apostle in his suffering. He is imprisoned. He is bound. This passage is intended by God to equip us for the trials that we face in life. The inevitable trials that every one of us will face. We won't face the same exact trial that he did in the same way that the church in Philippi didn't, but Paul is sharing his example so that others might be influenced by it. And this passage is absolutely remarkable. I, I still, I haven't gotten over how remarkable this passage is. Paul's circumstances are decidedly negative, but his outlook is wildly and outrageously positive. I, I tend to be a positive person. If you know me well, get to know me well, my friends would say that I tend to be a pretty positive person. The Apostle Paul is functioning on a whole nother level. And as I've been studying this passage, it is, it is remarkable how skilled the Apostle Paul is in looking at suffering and negative circumstances through a positive outlook. He has become skilled in this. And the reason for this positive outlook and attitude is this. I'll, I'll tell you the, the secret to it all. I'll tell you what explains it. Is that Paul's great passion in life is not his own comfort. His passion is not his own freedoms. His passion is not his own reputation. Paul's great passion is not himself in any way. It is the gospel and the advance of the gospel. His great passion is the glory of Jesus Christ. And that passion transforms every trial, every loss, every sorrow we face in life. 
Paul wants people to know that even though he is in chains, he is triumphant. He is, he is joyful. He is experiencing gospel happiness. He is looking to the Lord and his face is radiant. And he wants the church in Philippi to experience this same confidence and joy. They were no doubt wondering how Paul was doing in the midst of this extended trial. And so he says to them, you need to understand if you're thinking, oh, this is an awful situation. If you're thinking the gospel has ceased to advance. If you're thinking we need particular cultural circumstances in order for the gospel to advance and our witness to be effective. If you're thinking, he says, I'm sitting around sad and miserable, moping in my confinement, you've got it all wrong. He says, he says the situation is the exact opposite. Though I am in prison, in fact, even because I am in prison, the gospel is advancing and I am rejoicing. I mean, let this just, let this sit on you. What kind of gospel-centered craziness is going on here? And yet it is, it is perfectly logical, and it is a mark of maturity, this kind of response. There are too many Christians today who are sitting in the prison of their suffering, grumbling about how God could allow this to happen. When we are mistreated, outraged at the injustice of it all. I am sure that in Paul's shoes, we would be sulking in self-pity. We would be discontent and downcast. We would be tempted to find fault with God and his ways. Paul's radical Christ-centeredness proves to be absolutely transformative in everyday life, and that's the thing that makes the difference. The thing that makes the difference is this passion for the gospel. Friends, what is your consuming passion in life? Our consuming passion is not to be spared hardship. It is to adorn the gospel, to see the gospel advance, to see the name of Jesus Christ lifted up and exalted in our lives. That is our passion. And it's when we have that as the central defining passion in our lives that everything else falls into place. No, it may not mean an easier life, but it does mean a Christ-exalting life. It does mean a life of gospel happiness. What difference does this passion for the gospel and its advance make in our lives? Well, two points, both of them from this text. First, it changes our response to personal suffering. That's verses 12 through 14. And second, it changes our view of Christians who are in the wrong. And that's verses 15 through 18. First, a, a passion for the advance of the gospel changes our response to suffering. Look at this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really serve to advance the gospel. He says, they put me in prison to stop the advance of the gospel, but my imprisonment has in fact become the very means through which the gospel is powerfully advancing. I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. And verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole 
imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's the situation. The imperial guard, this was the highest ranking uh, members of the guard. It was around 9,000 men in Paul's day. Every four hours or so, a different guard would come and shackle himself to Paul. For Paul, this was an ideal evangelism opportunity. (laughs) Now, not all of them spent time directly with Paul, of course, all 9,000 of them, but the story, but many of them did, and the stories spread rapidly, were told throughout the entire guard and beyond of this extraordinary prisoner who was suffering for this man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The believers in Philippi, <laughs> try to imagine them reading this. They already knew that Paul does some of his best work in prison. He had been imprisoned over 10 years before when he was in Philippi. There's a Philippian jailer who read this letter who must have grinned and said, well, looks like Paul is at it again. (laughs) People being converted while Paul is in prison. But here, there is no dramatic earthquake. There There is no escape. Most often, God works through ordinary means. And his greatest work is not the removal of suffering from our lives, but his using us for the glory of Christ, even to bring others the message of the forgiveness of sins to others. And here, Paul was conducting himself throughout his suffering in such a way that he stood out. I imagine the soldiers had never seen anything like this man. So full of joy, so content in the midst of miserable circumstances, so filled with peace. Read the letter, see his demeanor, see his outlook. The entire absence of anger and railing. It's not hard to imagine a guard asking him the reason for his hope or the reason he is imprisoned. And then Paul would take advantage of that opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This man from Nazareth, the only savior of the world, who died on the cross for our sins and is now alive and reigning from heaven's throne, granting salvation freely to all who will trust in him. This message, the glory of Christ, was spreading even through Paul's imprisonment. Here is it. We learn here something of a Christian approach to suffering, a gospel-centered approach to suffering. And one of the, le- the great lessons we learn is this, that every trial you face is an opportunity to witness to Christ. Every trial you face. There is an opportunity that is there. It's an opportunity to witness to Christ in our response, in our attitude, in our words. I, I can guarantee you the way that you respond to trials in your life are going to impact others, either for better or for worse, but we are not solitary people. Your response is going to have an impact on unbelievers, on believers, people are watching. And one of the great marks of Christian maturity is that when hardship comes our way, we say, I may have not chosen this for myself, I wouldn't have chosen it for myself, but what an opportunity. 
Here is an opportunity for me to exalt the name of Christ and to testify to his goodness. The situations that appear to be disasters are in fact divinely ordained opportunities to testify to Jesus Christ. That's what one of the lessons that we learn from Paul's example. Here's another lesson related to suffering that will help us to be a people by God's grace who suffer well, which is one of our great desires as, as a church. In our suffering, we should search for ways God is at work. Paul says here that through his mistreatment, through his suffering, through this great injustice, God is at work. And he wants others to know that God is at work. God is working in unbelievers who are hearing the gospel. And Paul says he's at work in other believers who have been emboldened to share the gospel through Paul's example. This is verse 14. And most of the brothers, note that word most. This is speaking of the believers in, in Rome, in the, in the church there. Most of the brothers, not just many of them, but the majority of the Christian men and women in Rome, most of them, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So what's happening? The majority of Christians were now speaking the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were doing so without fear even in the face of opposition. For us, the days ahead will call for even more courage and fearlessness from believers. Church, may we be found faithful. May we be full of courage and fearless in the face of opposition. Walter Hansen in his commentary says this, when the danger of speaking for Christ increased beyond their worst nightmares their boldness increased beyond measure. That's what happened. And, and how did that happen? It happened through Paul's chains. It ha- the, the courage of one man was contagious and was now that courage was coursing through the veins of the Christians in Rome. They went from being timid. They went from, from being hesitant to evangelize. They went from from being fearful about talking with others about Jesus. They, they, They grew in this way. They were now full of courage and they were taking action. They were sharing this word, this message of the gospel. Matthew Harmon says it was an evangelistic explosion of dramatic proportion. That's what was happening. Paul's in prison, but he says, I want you to know, here's what's happening. It's spreading through the whole imperial guard, this message of the gospel that my imprisonment is for Christ, and there are so many other believers here in Rome. It's the majority of them, most of them, who are being emboldened by the presence of these chains to speak more boldly than ever before for the name of Jesus Christ. It is an evangelism explosion of dramatic proportion. One of the lessons for us, never underestimate the church-shaping power of one bold evangelist. I, I think the courageous example of one Christian is more likely to inspire 
the church toward evangelism than all the sermons in the world. The, the, the power of example, the power of this influence. And I, I prayed, in fact, found myself praying this week in a new way in light of this text, that God would raise up in the younger generation of covenant fellowship in particular, evangelists whose example will lead to an evangelistic explosion in our midst that impacts the majority of the church as it did in Rome. The effect that, that Paul's imprisonment had on the believers there, it should have the same effect on us today. The fruit in Covenant Fellowship Church from this passage ought to be that most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and are, as we leave today, much more bold to speak the word without fear. In 1555 in Oxford, there were two English reformers who were burned at the stake for their allegiance to Christ, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And as the fire was lit, Latimer shouted, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And their, their fearless courage, you may have even heard that story before, their fearless courage inspired many in following generations to share the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. More recently in the 1950s, five graduates from Wheaton College lost their lives seeking to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians, the Aka Five. One of the results of that was that over that next decade, many Wheaton graduates were filled with boldness and gave themselves to missionary service. It's the, it's the power of example. It's the same thing in how God was using Paul's imprisonment. Paul's Paul's passion for the gospel and its advance totally transforms his response to suffering. He is aware that God is at work. He is aware that God is on the move. And each one of us ought to think in the midst of our suffering, yes, we lament, yes, we grieve. We also consider how might God be using my present sufferings for his glory. What good might he be accomplishing? Where is he at work? And we allow that to then influence our perspective of these present trials. You remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You threw me in a pit. He said, you sold me into slavery. But God was at work even through your actions to rescue a people from famine and death. How often have we, in the midst of our trials, resigned that, that no good can come out of our particular suffering, only to have God surprise us and prove us wrong again and again? I thank God that he has been in the business of upsetting the expectations of hopeless and discouraged Christians for thousands of years. He doesn't take his cues from our discouragement or from our hopelessness or from our expectation. He works according to his great power and he does more than we can ask or imagine. And as his beloved children today, we can stand on the, the rock solid promise that all things really are working together for good. 
for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The God who was at work when Paul was in prison remains at work in our lives today. And it changes our view of suffering. Second then, a passion for the advance of the gospel changes our view of Christians who are in the wrong. And this is verses 15 through 18. Verse 15 introduces two subgroups of the brothers mentioned in verse 14 who are boldly speaking Christ. They're all, they're all preaching the same message in, in this case. If, if they were dangerous false teachers, Paul would not be rejoicing, but would speak as he does later in chapter 3, we will see, or even as he does in Galatians 1. Uh, we don't just rejoice wherever someone mentions Jesus. The content of the message matters. We, we don't rejoice in the preaching of the Mormon Christ. We don't rejoice in the Christ of the prosperity gospel or the version of Christ that never mentions sin. It's not the true gospel. But here, Paul says that both groups are preaching the true gospel. The difference is in their motives. Their motives differ. Some preach from goodwill and love, but there are others, he says, who are motivated by, verse 15, envy and rivalry, and out of selfish ambition, verse 17, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. We're not given all the details here, but they were somehow opposing Paul. They were acting with a sense of rivalry toward him and seeking to afflict him. Uh, whatever the details of the case, the situation is that other Christians were mistreating Paul. They were sinning against him. By the way, one of the things you should take away from that, it should never surprise us that Christians are sinners too. Um, Christians are prone to envy, rivalry, factions, tribalism, disunity. Christians will disappoint. Christians will sin against us. It's not that it doesn't matter. Motives matter. These Christians were clearly in the wrong. That's why Paul criticizes them. But the question that I want us to consider and that God wants us to consider is how should the Christian respond? And this passage, in fact, is, is a meaningful one to me personally. This passage helped me greatly years ago during a time that our family of churches, which I'm now involved in leading, was wrongly criticized. And there were many sovereign grace pastors and churches being mistreated and slandered by other Christians. And this passage was the one that God used to help me, to counsel me, and to minister to my soul. How does Paul respond when Christians mistreat him? He doesn't grow resentful. He doesn't throw a pity party. He doesn't join in competing with other Christians. He doesn't demonstrate a critical spirit. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, commenting on this passage, says this is often a great snare for Christians committed to the truth. Yet a Christian passionate about the truth, it is very easy to develop a streak of bitterness in our spirits when we see the errors of other professing Christians. The way in which we present the gospel can then be dominated by our criticism of others rather than by a presentation of Jesus Christ. The result, he says, is an unattractive harshness which does not commend Christ. 
How do we respond? How should we respond to Christians who are in the wrong? Verse 18 is absolute gold and is something you can only say if the gospel is your greatest passion. If the gospel and its advance is your greatest passion. Verse 18, yes, some are preaching from from rivalry. Yes, they are harming me. What then? Meaning, who cares? I refuse to lose any sleep over those who oppose me and afflict me and seek to tarnish my reputation. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed. Paul says, because I'm gospel-centered, because the gospel is my greatest passion, I refuse to elevate any other issue including motives and mistreatment, to the level of the gospel message. And I, I see, the reason that I'm, that I'm shouting right now is that I, is that I see this, this posture as so desperately needed in our day where evangelical tribalism abounds and where a growing number of Christians are elevating cultural issues and political issues to the level of the gospel and are thereby failing to be a gospel people? If you become bitter and argumentative and uncharitable toward those who mistreat you or disagree with you, you're not a gospel people. If you seek to build unity around race or politics or culture rather than Jesus Christ, you're not a gospel people. If you don't leave room for people to graciously disagree on matters of lesser importance, on secondary and tertiary issues, you're not a gospel people. We need to join with Paul and say, yes, these Christians are in the wrong. Yes, they have done me wrong. What then? Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I sometimes have the experience as a pastor where people will ask me what I think of this particular pastor out there in the evangelical world ministering in some other state. If you ever ask me about another pastor and what I think of them, the response will be something along the lines of, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. In other words, it's not that we agree with everyone about everything, but the fundamental posture, because we love the gospel, that if there is a faithful gospel minister, meaning faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming this message of Christ, leading to the salvation of others, the default response must be for the believer. That's part of what it means to be a gospel people and gospel-centered. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. D.A. Carson says, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. Christ is proclaimed, and in that we rejoice. For the Christian, our passion for the gospel and our passion for the advance of the gospel exerts a controlling influence over our response to suffering and 
Second, the way we view Christians who are in the wrong. If you want to know what explains Paul as we even get to know him in this text and the following section as well that we will come to, if you want to understand what makes Paul tick, it is this commitment to the gospel. Paul's example is impressive and clear, and I pray that it shapes each one of us deeply today. I made these personal resolutions from from Paul's example in these verses, and I invite you to join me in making these your own. They're brief, and I'll just read them. There's five resolutions. Because I so desperately want Paul and his example to have the impact that God intends it to in my life and in our lives. Here they are. One, resolved, I will make the gospel my main concern. However concerned I may be about cultural conditions and personal freedom and comforts, I will follow Paul's example and make the gospel a far greater passion. I will make the gospel my main concern. Two, Resolved, I will trust the hand of God in all my suffering. I will remember that all of my days are in his hand. And I will remember that the worst that I can ever face will come from his gracious hand. God is in control. God is up to something good. And I can trust him even when I don't understand his ways and even when I don't know what he's up to. Three, resolved, when trials come, I will be an example for others. I so greatly want my life to model to others how to respond to trials. Suffering awaits me in the future. And when it comes, I want to count it all joy and I want to stand firm in the faith. I want to be this kind of Christian. Fourth, resolved, I will speak Christ with boldness. If most of the Christians in Rome were confident and bold when they faced a greater threat than I do, I should grow in sharing the gospel without fear. And five, resolved, I will rejoice whenever Christ is preached. Because Christ is my life, because he is all my joy, all my hope, My heart will rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. I praise God that the gospel is going forth in power through our church. It was not only going forth in power then, it goes forth in power to this day. Friends, make this your resolve today to be a people of gospel happiness, to be a people in every circumstance are devoted to glorifying the name of Christ, a people who continue to rejoice and participate in the advance of this glorious message of salvation. May God accomplish that in our lives so that it makes a difference as we go from this place for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.